right. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on tonight's show. I have a very special guest. His name is Warren Cole Smith. So it's three names, Warren Cole Smith. Make sure you type that in when you look for this book that he just published, the title of which is Faith-Based Fraud, Learning from the Great Religious Scandals of Our Time, just published May 2021. And Warren Cole Smith is president of Minute.com, which is dedicated to bringing transparency, accountability, and restored credibility to the Christian ministry world. Before joining Ministry Watch, he held leadership positions at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and World Magazine. Warren also hosts the weekly podcast, Listening In, a long-form interview program heard by tens of thousands of subscribers each week. Before transitioning, transitioning to a career in ministry 20 years ago, Warren, for 15 years, was in the corporate world, including seven years as the marketing director for a major division of PricewaterhouseCoopers the global accounting and consulting firm. So we're going to talk about this book. It's an excellent book. It gave me a lot of insight as it was a kind of wide angle view of a lot of the problems in modern evangelical ministries and some of the names people may know or not know, but he's going to talk more about that. So Warren Cole Smith, are you there? I am. Well, thank you. It's good to be on with you. William. Awesome. Well, great. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard your background, can you talk about how you got involved in Ministry Watch and what led you to write this book, Faith-Based Fraud? Yeah, well, I'll uh, kind of go back to the very beginning, I guess you could say, and you can fast forward me through some of this if you want. But, uh, you know, I um, became interested in writing and journalism when I was in high school and um, wrote for my, I went to the University of Georgia and they have a you know pretty good journalism program, usually count rated a top 25 journalism program in the country, and I wrote for the school newspaper. So I've had a long-time fascination with journalism, and I've also been, um, you know, I hesitate to use the word committed Christian uh, because I've been more or less committed at different times over the years. But, um, you know, I've, I've taken my faith seriously since I was a teenager. And um, so for me, uh, writing in journalism and my, and my Christian faith were two parts of my life that I just, you know, didn't really want to separate, didn't see a need to separate. So I've kind of been involved in uh, writing about religion and the intersection between religion, politics, and culture for uh, a lot of years. And, um, you know, it, that led me uh, eventually into um, working for World Magazine. World Magazine is arguably the largest Christian news magazine in the country. World and Christianity Today are probably the two that that argue about which one's the biggest, <laughs> the most. Um, but I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, eight years full-time on staff there, did a lot of uh, freelancing both before and after as well. And, you know, over the years, I just um, would gravitate toward these big stories. Uh, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. Jim and Tammy Baker's uh, PTO, you know, empire was based here in Charlotte. And even though I didn't move to Charlotte until after that scandal had already broken, it's kind of in the water here. So you end up, you know, knowing about it. Mark Etheridge is a friend of mine. He is the was the editor of the Charlotte Observer whenever the Charlotte Observer broke all of those new stories about PTL, and they ultimately won a Pulitzer Prize for that story. So I, in some ways, kind of feel like I had uh, you know, a front row seat or at least a second or a third row seat to that PTL scandal. And then over the years, just got interested in other stories. Some of them I covered myself. Um, some of the stories in the book include um, the sort of the scandal at Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington. I broke a lot of the important stories related to that. Bill Gothard um, is a 
pretty well-known leader in the homeschool community in particular. Back in the 70s and 80s, he used to do stadium events that would attract 15 or 20,000 people to these big stadium events. And so, you know, like I say, just over the years, I've covered these events. And but as a Christian, my goal was never to, you know, kind of tear tear down these organizations or institutions. Always my goal personally was to say, what can we do to reform Christianity? What can we do uh, to learn from these scams and scandals so that they don't uh, recur, that so that they don't repeat, so that we can guard against them, we can prevent them in the future? So that William, that has kind of always been my motivation and what has um, driven me, and that's ultimately what led to this book. Right, and I think you you state over and your over and over in your book that investigative journalism is a crucial element in kind of looking into these problems that have happened in many of these different evangelical churches or mega churches. And you actually start your book off with a very interesting character that I think really does typify some of these events in these churches. And his name was Charles Ponzi. Can you talk a little bit about him and why he's relevant to the modern problems in the modern evangelical church? Yeah, well, I will. Uh, l- let me just say, though, you mentioned something that I that I can't let pass, and that is just the role of investigative journalism. That's work that you do, for example. And, you know, I think that uh, and I think journalism is is vital. Investigative journalism is vital. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a, it is an indispensable. Not only is it in the First Amendment, freedom of the press, but, uh, you know, it's just a um, Regular government regulation doesn't seem to work. Um, watchdog organizations, uh, like in my world, the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, don't really seem to do the job. I think they're important. Um, you know, I think government regulations, to a certain extent, are important, and watch in organizations like the ECFA are important. But I think it takes investigative journalism to really. Um, you know, operate in an uninhibited and independent way to bring down a lot of these worse uh, kinds of frauds. So I, I, I think that, you know, that's in some ways a subtext of this book is just the importance of investigative journalism. But back to your question about Ponzi. Yeah, I started with with uh, Charles Ponzi, even though a lot of people don't think of him as a quote unquote faith based fraud. And it also happened, you know, a hundred years ago now. It happened in the you know 1920s. But um, I wanted to start with that story because everybody's heard of a Ponzi scheme. And um, it, it also allowed me to sort of um, define terms uh, going forward that would be used over and over again in the book. Words like Ponzi scheme, uh, words like affinity fraud, and um, how, why, how, why is it that uh, that people will trust other people to give them money? What are kind of the the um, the skills that the fraudster has to get people to give them money? And I thought that Charles Ponzi's life and story. Uh, really brought a lot of those uh, ideas vividly to life. For those who don't know who Charles Ponzi was, he he um, lived in the Boston. He became most famous. He lived all over the place, but he uh, became most famous for a time that he spent in Boston. And uh, he was uh, from uh, Italy, and he was co- sort of actively involved in the um, in the um, sort of the Italian Catholic community uh, in Boston. So there was a faith-based element to what he was doing. He uh, sort of community and affinity fraud was at work here. Uh, people trusted him because he was, uh, you know, Paisano. He's one of us, and uh, and so they would um, 
Uh, that was one of the reasons that they gave me money. And we see that characteristic over and over again. People, you know, they're, they're, uh, what I say in the book, uh, William, is there are two ways to earn trust. One is you can earn it. You can actually work with somebody and, and you know, make agreements with them and keep your agreements and do that over and over again. And people learn to trust you because you're as good as your word. The other way is not called earned trust, but imputed trust. And that's because uh, I get that trust, not because of anything I've done, but because of people I know. You know, people might say, well, yeah, I know William. He's a good guy. You can trust William. Well, they're taking my word for it in that case. They've really not, you know, actually seen you behave and earn the trust. They're just taking my word for it and they trust me or vice versa. That's what happened with Ponzi. That's what happens with a lot of affinity frauds and especially faith-based frauds, that they will trust people in that community without really doing the kind of due diligence that they would normally do when they give people money. So anyway, Ponzi came up with this scheme that involved postal codes. I describe it pretty in depth in the book, and I can do that, William, here if you want me to. But for now, I'll just say that you could buy these postal um, uh, codes for these these postal stamps, if you will. They were, they were international reply coupons is what they were technically called. And um, you could buy them from one price, but you could sell them for another price. And so that's what Ponzi told people he was doing. He was going to make money on the difference between buying the price of the buying and the price of the selling of those things. In the financial terms, that's called arbitrage. And um, it's not, there's nothing illegal about it. And if Ponzi had actually gone through with this scheme, you know, it might have worked. He might have been able to buy these coupons for six cents a piece and sell them for eight or buy them for four cents and sell them for six. And if you bought enough of them, he could make some money at it. The problem is he never intended to do what he said he was going to do. He just took people's money. He never bought any of these international reply coupons, never invested in them. Instead, he lived a lavish lifestyle. He made people believe that he was wildly successful. And that um, is another characteristic of frauds is they make people believe they're successful so that other people will give them money. We saw that with Bernie Madoff. We saw that in even with um, Jim and Tammy Baker. They lived a lavish lifestyle. A lot of the prosperity gospel preachers will do that. Uh, they make people believe that their ideas must be true because look what it's done for me. Well, the bottom line was that Ponzi was simply paying his early investors off with later investors. And eventually, like all Ponzi schemes, you run out of later investors. <laughs> the, the scheme falls apart. And that's what happened with Charles Ponzi. But again, it's a, it's a hundred years old. And you might think, well, why are you, you know, why are you using that as the opening story in your book? But it's because it allows me to really get at these issues of affinity fraud and earned trust versus imputed trust and the characteristics that these fraud uh, fraudulent people often have. The point being that we should be wary of them. We should now look for them. We can learn from those experiences and hopefully not duplicate them. And I think you do a great job in that book defining all those terms so people can understand them clearly. Defining arbitrage, defining the Ponzi scheme, because you see those, well, I mean, as you know, you see those phenomenons in these later churches and how they become irresponsible. Some, like you say, aren't starting to be involved in a Ponzi scheme, but some things just get out of hand without oversight or things like that. That's a common right. theme in your book. But can you talk about, and you also, one of the interesting things you note in your book is that Charlotte is kind of an epicenter for a certain type of Christianity. There's so much of a, uh, a centrality of all these other groups are around Charlotte. So PTL was part of some of this other stuff that's happening. But can you talk about uh, Jim and Tammy Baker and how they got in trouble? 
Yeah, you know, Jim and Tammy Baker is, is an interesting story um, because, as, as you said, not everybody, you know, starts off as frauds. You know, so I think a lot of people start off with good intentions. And another theme of this of the book uh, is this notion of transparency and accountability. I sometimes call transparency and accountability the two guardrails that should be in place on the sides of the road. Otherwise, you're going to run off the road. And I think that that is really more what happened with Jim and Tammy Faye. They started off, you know, a young couple, kind of a sweet young couple. Everybody wanted to kind of pat them on the head whenever they would come perform in local churches. And and they, you know, developed kind of a shtick, I guess you could say, as, uh, you know, uh, almost like George Burns and Gracie Allen. They were actually compared by the older people in their churches when they were getting their start in the 60s and 70s to George Burns and Gracie Allen. So it, it was an act that they did live in churches to kind of minister to the local congregations, but it was also an act that translated really well to television whenever the burgeoning Christian television scene was kind of coming along in the 70s. And so they ended up, um, you know, helping, to, they, were, they were instrumental, Jimmy, Tammy, they were instrumental in the founding of several of the largest Christian television networks in the country. The um, the Christian Broadcasting Network, Pat Robertson's network that was founded in Virginia Beach, Virginia. The Trinity Broadcasting Network, which is the big, uh, you know, mega ministry, mega network that's out in California. And, the you know, what ultimately became the Inspiration Network, BTL and the Inspiration Networks here in the Charlotte area as well. So, you know, they were kind of at the right place at the right time with the right skill set and and um, so things got really, really successful for them quickly. At a, they were at a fairly young age. But again, because they didn't have those guardrails around them, they didn't have, you know, a tra a people that were telling them, you know, hey, you can't do this or you shouldn't do things in this particular way. They were so young and inexperienced and the money just started pouring in once they got on television that it became a, a real problem for them to handle. And, you know, the, the scandal itself, was was pretty kind of vanilla. They built this big um, hotel, this resort here in the Charlotte area called Heritage uh, USA, and they sold basically memberships to the hotel. You might all call it a timeshare, where you know you could you know for a certain amount of money you could spend a week a year at the hotel. But the problem, William, is that they way oversold it. You know, in other words, you got so many rooms in the hotel, so many weeks during the year. That should, you know, that's just a simple math problem. It'll tell you how many you can sell. And they ended up selling far, far more of those memberships than they had any possible way of meeting. And so that is sort of the specific nature of their fraud was wire fraud and mail fraud and overpromising and not being able to deliver. But, you know, in the midst of it all, there were just all kinds of things came out. They were buying Rolls Royces. They were flying in private jets. They were living in mansions. They were buying, you know, $10,000 dog houses for their poodle. I mean, it was just, it just got completely out of hand. I think you said uh, they took a plane to Palm Springs, but paid for the Palm Springs, the plane, to wait for them in Palm Springs. So they paid some That's exorbitant right. amount of money. So yeah, yeah. a lot of kind of uh, real problems, but the it unwound into a huge loss for a lot of people. And I think that's a really a, a tragic theme in the book is that a lot of people lose livelihoods. They lose their well-being and their security by these people who let these churches get out of hand. Can you talk about how much money was lost at PTL? 
Yeah, my, my, you know, it's funny, William. You, you know, I wrote the book, so I should know the answer to that question. It's 150 million. I think it was. Yeah, I was going to say 150 million. I'm glad that's actually the right answer. The, um, but yeah, you know, and you're right. You really raise an important point here, and that is that you know these stories are fascinating. We, we, you know, we can look at Charles Ponzi, or we can look at you know Jim and Tammy Baker and the PPL, and we think, you know, they're flamboyant people. They're you know larger than life. They're they make great stories. They're they're kind of fun to you know, to uh, listen to their stories or hear their stories. And maybe we can learn a few lessons, but I really, you raised a point that I hope that, uh, you know, that our listeners don't, um, don't gloss over. And that is that there are real victims here that, that um, there are people that, um, you know, invested thousands of dollars with Jim and Tammy Baker and they couldn't afford that thousands of those thousands. Of, I mean, they were, they were making real sacrifices in order to invest that, you know, what might seem in the grand scheme of things, a relatively small amount of money and a relatively small amount of money in the context of the $150 million that was ultimately involved here. But, you know, for a couple that's, you know, maybe an elderly couple that's living on a fixed income or a young couple with a family that's, you know, kind of living paycheck to paycheck and hoping that they've got enough money at the end of the month to buy their kids a new pair of shoes. Um, you know, this is real money to them. And they were they were victimized. Um, you know, that I, I often say that ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims and uh, there are real victims here and we're talking about a lot of money and of course the other aspect of this which you were i think also alluding to is at its peak as near as i can tell there were about three thousand people that were working for the PTL network and all of its various ministries that basically just lost their jobs virtually overnight. And, um, you know, so there, there are, there are real people whose lives were affected, you know, uh, kids that didn't get to go to college because of the money lost, um, homes that, you know, were lost or opportunities that were not able to be seized by these families that, and, you know, could have multi-generational consequences given the way, you know, wealth is uh, accumulated in this country. So, um, yeah, this, these aren't just funny stories uh, or even interesting stories. These are in some ways really tragic stories that we need to, that, that recur over and over again. That's why we need to really look, take a deep look into them and learn the lessons that are there. Yeah, and there's a lot of lesson, lessons there with Jim and Tammy Baker. They were really kind of one of the first at the peak, like I think you note in your book, of television, but they they were not the last. Can you talk about Todd Bentley and your experiences? Like you're doing some of the research and looking into these televangelists individually, and Todd Bentley is an interesting character. Can you talk about him? Yeah, Todd Bentley is a, is a bizarre character. Once again, a Charlotte guy. I mean, it was, uh, in fact, on the old, kind of the ruins of the old PTL network, there's a guy named Rick Joyner who has created Morningstar Ministries, and he's down there, and Todd Bentley was kind of in Rick Joyner's uh, universe or constellation of stars or whatever it might be. But but Todd Bentley is, um, you know, uh, again, one of these kind of larger-than-life flamboyant characters. He had, you know, a lot of tattoos, and he just um, you know, kind of looked like a you know a biker dude in some ways, but he 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 was a great communicator, and that's one of the things that you often find, William, is that these you know these guys rise because of competence and fall because of character, and uh, that it, it's not that they don't have gifts, it's not that they don't have skills and qualities that are worth admiring. Often they really do. And Todd Bentley was one of those guys who was a gifted communicator. He could preach and he could get people, you know, could attract people to him. And there was a season, um, I, 
you know, back, I don't know, it's probably 10 or 12 years ago now where he was down in uh, Lakeland, uh, Florida, uh, which is in the Orlando area. And I, by the way, I should say that, that, um, that, Charlotte, Colorado Springs, and Orlando are kind of the three big evangelical meccas in this country. There are a lot of Christian ministries concentrated in those three cities. So anyway, he was uh, you know, in central Florida, and he um, started preaching a, kind of a tent revival thing. Well, one thing led to another, and, and he started making these outrageous claims, and his staff started doing things that were you know, not strictly true, like, you know, saying that people have been healed at his services and folks just started coming. They just started coming. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of people. They erected these huge circus, you know, style tents there. Um, they were on an old um, airport. They actually erected it on an old airport and on the runway. And so because they were kind of far out, they actually set up ATM machines in the tent wow. so that when they pass the bucket around, people would have cash to be able to put in the in the bucket. He said, well, if you don't have any cash, that's fine. Just we've got an ATM machine in the lobby. And so it just, you know, gives you an idea of the brazenness of this thing. But so I think, you know, I'm following this thing, William, and, and you know, uh, they they hire a publicist and she's reaching out to the media. And I'm thinking, OK, well, I'm going to take them seriously. They, they're claiming to heal people. I want to listen to the people that have been healed and I want to interview them. I want to talk to them. And I, that went on for months and months and months where they wouldn't give me uh, a list. But finally, ama I was amazed. I remember one day sitting in my office whenever I got to get this email. I'd, I'd actually forgotten that I'd made the request. It had been so many months earlier. And I get this list and it's got like 13 names on it. And I just start, you know, using Google and, and a background check program that I'm, a, you know, that I subscribe to. I start um, calling these folks and was able to get in touch with, with most of them. And, um, you know, just to kind of fact check these stories. And as it turns out, I mean, I'll, I'll spare you a lot of details here unless you want to ask about them, uh, William, but they were, it was completely fraudulent. I mean, there was not one person on that list that had really been healed of what it was that they had said that they'd been healed of. And in fact, by the time I got to a couple of them, they were already dead. Two, uh, two of them were dead. And, and this was, you know, probably 10 years ago now, whenever, whenever I did the whenever this thing was going on and I did the original research, that article was originally published in World Magazine. I did a little fact checking whenever I published the book. I went back and sort of updated them. A couple more had died since, you know, then. So again, these are real victims, real people, real families that are being taken advantage of here. Um, you know, in some ways you can think, well, this is just kind of a crazy story and ha ha ha, isn't it interesting and funny? But it's not. It's tragic. These are people's lives that have been changed forever because of the frauds of, of, of these people, of these events. And they're, they're super vulnerable too. So that's what's even worse. Well, they want healing. He claims to be a faith healer. Then it doesn't happen or it's manipulative and maybe they lost money. You don't know whether those guys, Christopher Fogel, how much money they gave Bentley or what it was. Right. Cause there, there's kind of like this prosperity theme within a lot of these guys is you pay for blessings. It's almost like the, you, you compare it to the indulgences of the Catholic church. That, well, that's exactly right. And you, you know, and you're raising a good point because even if, you know, you mentioned Chris Vogel, he was one of the, the guy, he was the guy that I started that chapter with where, you know, he loved to go fishing with his family and a young father. And, 
you know, they, they claimed he was completely healed. By the time I got to the story and was started doing the fact checking, he would already died of the cancer that he had supposedly been healed of. So it's so even if Chris Fogel, you know, maybe didn't lose a bunch of money, that story was used over and over and over again by Todd Bentley to raise money from others. So, you know, so he was raising money using completely fraudulent means uh, in in order to do that, so it, and you also raise another point where they're vulnerable. I mean, these, you know, by their very nature, a lot of times, you know, people don't show up with you know stage four cancer at events like this unless they've tried everything else. I mean, they've they've tried everything and it's not working. So yes, they're vulnerable. They're desperate for a solution, and they got a guy. You know, there's a guy that tells them that they've got a solution. So yeah, it's just reprehensible the the behavior. And, and and by the way, I say this as a Christian, I believe in God. I believe in miracles. I believe in healing, but not this way. This is not the way it's supposed to happen. Yeah, and what's really also another theme is some of these big the numbers you're talking about and some of these preachers are enormous or some of these Christian groups. I was shocked like tens of hundreds of billions of dollars are being spent on these non in these non taxable institutions it's incredible how much money is really around and these are just two examples of some of the abuse of that money but there's a lot of donations and a lot of really well-meaning people who want to give their money to good causes. Would you agree with that? Well, yeah, that's right. In fact, I, I, I want to, uh, you're, you're, you're reminding me of another point that I want to make, and that is that that Christian ministries do great work in this country. Um, I, I've got some statistics in the book that say that something along the lines of 7% of our GDP is from nonprofit organizations. And, you know, there are lots of different kinds of nonprofit organizations, but, but, the, but the reality is a vast majority of them are religious nonprofit organizations, you know, church Churches and the big uh, nonprofit organizations like World Vision, for example, a $2 billion organization, Compassion International, a $1 billion organization. You know, um, we, we uh, at Ministry Watch, I'm the president of Ministry Watch, where I am now, we have a database of about 950 of the largest Christian ministries in the country with their financial statements there. And William, those organizations represent $34 billion a year in annual giving. So this is real money. This is a real uh, industry. Um, it needs to behave with integrity and, and transparency. Um, and so that's, you know, kind of what our mission at Ministry Watch is about and what my mission uh, here at the book is as well. Right. And I mean, there's that's an incredible, there's a real incentive to be in this line of work if that much money is floating around with all those benef benefits of these churches, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, that's a, that's another great point. You know, what, what, how, yeah, what was that guy that they asked him why Rob Banks? And he said, because that's where the money is. And in some ways, that's why, you know, I think some people, you know, either get into Christian ministry or fall into fraud after they've been in ministry, Christian ministry because they just realize how much money is in, is involved here, and it's possible to to get wealthy, and and many people have. In fact, we're we've got a story coming up soon about the Inspiration Networks. The president of the Inspiration Networks, David Cirillo, made seven million dollars last year. That was his that was his personal compensation. It's and incredible. so um, the, there's um, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, which I've already mentioned once in our conversation. William, the one of those organizations that Jim and Tammy Baker helped found back in the seventies. 
they're going through a very complicated reorganization now. And so we're, be, we're able to get kind of a peek at what their financial assets are in a way that we haven't been able to do that in the past because they're moving from California to Texas and the regulations are requiring some of the um, their documents to be disclosed. But they have about a billion dollars in assets, not to mention the fact that they have between $1,500 million a year coming in in donation income. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is there's a lot of money. It's incredible. And the, they don't have the same reporting requirements as your standard corporation or anything like that. That's so exactly that's, right. Yep. That's even more curious is that the government allows these nonprofits to they're flying blind. And I mean, you have a secrets in there that I didn't know about this, this, the Grassley six who were less than willing to, to be transparent about where their money's going. And those are huge numbers. And one of your chapters is about what plane would Jesus fly? Like these guys are living larger than the heads of some corporations in this yeah. country. Well, that's right. And, and you know, it's, it's funny you you mentioned that because um, Charles Grassley is back in the news. And we can talk about that in a minute if you want, because he's trying to regulate Christian uh, one small aspect of Christian ministries again um, uh, now. But, yeah, the Grassley Six was an investigation uh, by Senator Charles Grassley into six uh, televangelists. It resulted in nothing, really nothing good came out of it. I mean, there was one ministry, Joyce Meyer Ministries, made some reforms, but for the most part, no reforms whatsoever. But but the key learning, I think, that a lot of the public got out of that was that was exactly what you just said, William. And that is that if I'm the CEO of a publicly traded company, I have to do far more disclosure, you know, than than a uh Christian ministry does these days. I mean, we, I, I, I understand religious liberty issues. I understand that it is dangerous whenever the government starts poking its nose into churches and nonprofit organizations and so on. And I am not in favor of, you know, a high level of government regulation. I've got a wide libertarian streak running down my back, but uh, you know, we've got regulations in the nonprofit world that haven't been amended since the 1960s. And think about what's happened since the 1960s. Cable television, satellite radio, um, you know, the Internet. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on of the changes that we have had in the media landscape and, and just in the economic and business landscape since the mid-60s, which was the last time that there was any comprehensive um, reform of nonprofit laws. In my view, even though I'm not a big government oversight kind of a guy, we need not not more regulation, but a re-regulation of the Christian nonprofit sector so that we can get more transparency and accountability out of that world. And you kind of make this point in the book, too, is that even if the regulations are there, they'll just ignore them anyway. So it's like, what's the point of the regulation if, That's right. if there's yeah. no penalty or there's no consequences of that? And I mean, some of the names of the people who didn't report to the Grassley Six, or people, people that people know, Kenneth Copeland, uh, Benny Hinn, people, Creflo Dollar, people you see on TV all the time, and uh, yeah, it's really, it was just really fascinating to see that they were willing to really comply with the senators' request. Yeah, they just, they just, you know, they just basically said no, we're not going to do it. And these days too, there's another phenomenon going on. If you are not like, if you and I, you know, William and Warren formed the William and Warren nonprofit organization to feed the hungry in our town or whatever it is. We've got to file a form 990 every year. It's like a tax return, and it'll say how much money we take in, how much money we spend. Uh, you know, how much money we make, you and I individually make, that's, that, that's on the Form 990. But if you're a church, you don't have to do that. 
And uh, it's called the church exemption. Well, now lots of ministries that don't marry, don't bury, don't have Sunday morning services, they're not, they're not really churches in any meaningful sense of the word at all, are claiming this church exemption in order not to make their 990s available to the public. That's a phenomenon that we've seen really grow in the last years. It's something that we're trying to speak out against here at Ministry Watch. We don't think that that is a good idea at all. And um, But yeah, I mean, just one more way that that ministries can hide behind just the disclosure requirements and, and say, we're not going to let people know what we're up to. Yeah, no, it's really incredible because like even the reporting requirements for corporates, it's every quarter, it's quarterly. There's massive record, uh, requirements for public companies that are smaller than some of these churches, I would assume. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of uh, it's curious, curious deregulation. But I think that you make the point these mega churches are are kind of a new phenomenon, too. So I think that maybe that the legal community really hasn't caught or the, or the Congress hasn't caught up with these massive churches. You said one of these churches at 21,000 members. It's just imagine how much money those guys are, are granting or generating per month. I mean, this big numbers and, and you had kind of had some tragic stories about some of these pastors who get caught up without any oversight, without any, maybe they're not used to these organizations and they get in deep trouble. And, and there's been some real tragedies in, in the Christian evangelical community. Yeah, there have been. And you're right. That's something we, we didn't even talk about when I was talking earlier about the changes that have happened. But in 1970, there were probably only about 15 megachurches in this country, Protestant megachurches. That's a megachurch defined as having more than 2000 people attending on a Sunday morning. But like you just said, you know, there are, there are a number of churches that have more than 20,000. Uh, people who show up uh, Joel Osteen's church, uh, Lakewood Church down in um, Houston, Texas, Rick Warren Saddleback Church out in California. Uh, and the one that we spend a chapter on in the book is um, Willow Creek Community Church in the Chicago area. Uh, they grew kind of from the 1970s, mid 70s. They were founded from startup from zero to, you know, 20,000 in multi sites. And their pastor, Bill Hybels, we come to find out. Um, had basically a private life. He he ended up uh, being involved in uh, sexual liaisons and sexual abuse situations with members of his staff and others. And you know that church has um, has recently kind of blown up and you know imploded in size. Another church, Mars Hill Church, which is in Seattle, Washington, um, that went from startup, you know, zero to. 15,000 members just within a matter of a few, very few years. I ended up when I was at World Magazine writing a series of articles about uh, Mars Hill Church. My, my articles weren't the only reason that that church um, imploded, but um, very soon after an article that I wrote that talked about how Mark Driscoll had bought his way onto the New York Times bestseller list by fraudulently uh, doing book purchases in bookstores all around the country. Um, that church imploded and no longer exists. I mean, literally a year, year and a half after I had written my article, that church went from 15,000 to completely out of existence, dissolved wow. as an organization. And, uh, you know, that's not the kind of thing I take pride in, <laughs> you know, that we wrote an article about it and it caused that kind of change. But on the other hand, um, I'm not ashamed of it either. And if, if, if uh, some positive change needs to happen there. And I also want to be clear that it wasn't just my article that um, that brought that church down. But, but what's shocking is how much money he spent to promote his book. I think you said it was like 210000 to promote her. I was like, wow. Yeah. 
That's yeah. a significant investment. To well, it is. Time. They had to not. They they paid a company called Result Source to sort of coordinate it. But the 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 nutshell is is that they had thousands of individuals all around the country that were using um, gift cards primarily, like Visa Visa debit cards and that kind of thing that they would be given to um, go walk into a bookstore that they that they thought would be a New York Times reporting bookstore and um, buy these books so that they could, you know, they ended up having to buy pretty close to 20,000 books in a single week to make it appear that these books were, you know, bestsellers, that they were catching fire. But in fact, it was completely artificial. The, the, the church itself had to pay that money um, to, you know, to pay for all these debit cards that were being used by these folks all over the country. So, yeah, it was just a big scandal. It turns out that that's happened quite a lot. I mean, my chapter is about, in the book, is mostly about Mark Driscoll, but I also identify probably a half a dozen other um, pastors that have done the same thing. Right. I mean, it's really incredible. And I think you said the EFCA, which you reference often in your book pro pro uh, prohibits that. So yeah, that was something there. I mean, it seems like the EFCA should have a little bit more power and authority. It, it doesn't seem like these guys are really abiding by that. Would you agree with that? Or well, yeah. I mean, I, I have a kind of a love-hate relationship with the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. On the one hand, they have published some great standards. There are seven standards of, um, of financial integrity that they publish on their website are really thoughtful, well-done standards. The problem is they don't have any mechanism for holding ministries to those standards. That if a ministry chooses uh, to uh, adhere to those standards, that's a good thing. They, they can at least look at those and say, okay, these are best practices. This is what we should be doing. And if you've got leaders with integrity, they would do that. They would look at those, those uh, printed standards and try to make sure that they're living up to them. But if another leader chooses not to, the ECFA can't do anything about it. And the other thing about the ECFA is that if you want, if I'm a ministry leader and I want to join the ECFA, not only do I have to adhere to those standards, but I have to pay the ECFA to be a member. And the larger the ministry, the more money I pay them. So there's an, an inherent conflict of interest. The ECFA is going to be discouraged from really confronting a member organization around some lapse in integrity because they could lose that organization as a member and therefore it'd be like firing a customer. You, you know, they, they would lose that organization as a customer. So I think the ECFA does some good work and, um, but, but they, they, they can't do what really needs to be done, which is to hold organizations accountable. Another limitation is that there are a million uh, Christian nonprofits in this country, but only about 2,500 members of the ECFA. So there's not really a, a stigma for not being a member. In other words, if you're a member, great. But if you're not a member, nobody, you know, cares really. And um, so th there's some real limitation of the ECFA. I'm glad they exist. I think we need them, but we need them and a whole lot more to really solve these problems of of, um, of lack of integrity and credibility within the Christian ministry marketplace. Right. I mean, there's been a, there's a lot of frauds you mentioned a lot more in this book, but it's also just the ones that may have not been busted for fraud. How many people are giving? What's their percentage of paying? In certain investor groups, you can't give a certain amount of money. You have to be accredited. But how many of these people are giving $1,000 of their $2,000 social security check to these guys? I don't know. There's no reporting requirement for that. I think that that's uh, it's a serious issue, and I think I think that there people need to kind of be concerned about some of that because it's about you know who's giving their last penny to some of these groups. 
Yeah, well, that's that's exactly right. And in fact, we get I get stories at Ministry Watch every day where you know people will say, "Hey, I've been given to this ministry for twenty years, and I read the profile that you guys published on Ministry Watch, and I'm never really going to give them another dime. Why didn't I know this? In, you know, until now, and um, and that's so. Yeah, that's a that's a real issue. I mean, that one sequence on if people just read that one page in your book about how many of these guys have nice Gulfstream jets and all these. Private Falcon Jets, you'd be wondering, what are you paying your money? Are you really, is your money being transformed through a Christian idea to do the Christian work, or are you paying for these guys' salaries? But it's a great book. Warren Cole Smith loved this book, highly recommended. People should come read. There's a lot more in this book, but we're kind of wrapping up. We're about 40 minutes. Is there anything I missed or anything you'd like to leave your social media or where can people, where's the best place for people to get the book Faith Based Fraud? Yeah, we're we're in all the usual places. We're um, you know Amazon and so on and so forth. My social media: Warren Cole Smith uh, on uh, Twitter, um, Warren Smith on Facebook. I'd be delighted to have some of your listeners uh, follow me there, and we post our stories every day. We we probably post anywhere from two to five stories a day on the Ministry Watch website, and uh, so go to ministrywatch.com. And um, you can sign up for our daily emails or you can just check us out, you know, at your convenience whenever you want to there. And we uh, try to keep up with uh, what's going on in the ministry world. We write on the bad guys, but we also uh, a couple times a week tell positive stories as well as the organizations that are doing really good work. Because like I said, William, you know, we need we need nonprofit organizations. We need Christian ministries. You know, Alexis de Tocqueville, as far back as, you know, the 1830s and 40s, when he wrote Democracy in America, said that these associations, these institutions of civil society, what really, they're the glue that hold the culture together. We need them, but we need them to operate with integrity. And that's what we're trying to do at Ministry Watch. I agree. So people go check that out, ministrywatch.com. I'm going to sign up for the emails myself today. Again, the name of the book is Faith-Based Fraud. Learning from the Re Great Religious Scandals of Our Time, published May uh, 2021. And the author, again, is Warren Cole Smith. So get the full name, Warren Cole Smith. Warren, thanks so much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right, take care.